And I, I put our modem in the fireplace, hoping it would thaw. You see me after services and let me know if you think that was a good idea. Uh, I've shared this t- statistic with you before that goes along the lines of if you take all the people who sleep in church and laid them end to end, they would all rest more comfortably. <laughs> and uh, thanks, Gabe. You, you missed an hour's sleep last night, but you're here, and I'm very grateful for that fact. I want to begin our, our study this morning with a couple of questions. First of all, have you ever had an experience that just uh, ch- totally changed the way you look at the world? I think the right word here is an epiphany. You've had an epiphany that just changed your perspective on just about everything. I remember reading about a fellow... A Bible major that I went to Freed Hardman with that told about an experience like that that occurred for him back in September of 2003. He was in eastern Ukraine and he was teaching a three-week class at the Bible Institute in Donetsk. And when Sunday came, Dan was invited to preach at one of the local congregations and that was essentially why he was there, so he was happy to oblige. And the members of the congregation, he said, were so poor that they didn't pass a collection plate during the worship service. The preacher explained why. He said he wanted to avoid uh, embarrassing those who had absolutely nothing to give. And so the members of the congregation uh, observed a, a different kind of protocol, and a box was placed near one of the walls in the auditorium. And before and after the service, a handful of the worshipers would quietly slip over to that box, put their hand underneath the cloth covering the box, and discreetly place their contributions there. That's just the way they did it. Well, after the service was over, the young preacher, who was approximately 24 years of age, invited Dan to lunch. He also invited another Christian couple who was in their early 20s. He thought that they might have something in common. And they adjourned to a cramped classroom at the back of the building. They sat down around a small table that was designed for small children, and the preacher placed a small paper bag on the table. And Dan assumed that it was the preacher's lunch. And he glanced around to see where all the other paper bags were for the rest of the people, but there were none that were forthcoming. That's when the epiphany occurred for Dan. From that solitary sack... The preacher extracted the following. One sausage, about eight inches long, two inches wide, dark brown, dense, and chewy. There was one orange. There was half a loaf of bread. 
The host then produced a sharp knife. He carefully cut a thin slice of bread and then cut a similarly narrow slice of sausage. And then he placed the sausage on the bread and he ceremoniously handed it to Dan, who was the the guest of honor. He repeated the process for the young couple. And then he cut cut off the bread and the sausage uh, slices for himself. And after they had eaten their slices, the preacher repeated the process, eventually going around that little table three times. When all four of them had finished this main course, they were ready for dessert, which was the orange. Not oranges, the orange. The young preacher meticulously cut a thin slice of orange. He solemnly handed it to Dan. And then once again, he went around the table serving slices until the orange was, was eventually gone. And as they were eating, Dan, he said, it occurred to him that the young preacher did not seem the least bit self-conscious about serving what we here in America would consider to be an embarrassingly meager meal. And upon further reflection, Dan was ashamed of himself for thinking that thought. Because in truth, while he wasn't stuffed as he would have been if he had been here in America and eaten one of our typical meals, he said the food was enough to satisfy his hunger. And meanwhile, all three young adults were endlessly fascinated about life in the United States. And so as Dan was eating his meager meal, they began to pepper him with all kinds of questions about American culture. Dan says he has long since forgotten what most of those questions were. But after 19 years, he said there are two questions that they ask that still stand out. He still remembers. Question number one. The young Ukrainian preacher was the one who asked the first of the two questions. And he said, tell me, is it true that George W. Bush, who was then at that time president of the United States, that he is not, that he is not very smart? Well, Dan was, uh, was reluctant to be drawn into a political conversation. And so he simply said, if that's true, then W. somehow managed to graduate from Yale University as well as Harvard Business School, and then get himself elected governor of Texas and president of the United States. And then the young lady asked the question that became the most penetrating question in the entire conversation. Just as earnestly, she said, tell me, is it true that in America you can find perfectly good used furniture set out for the garbage? After a brief pause, Dan had to reluctantly admit that he had seen that. He said, yes, I've seen discarded furniture dumped at the curb, waiting to be picked up by the trash collectors. And that was when a silence fell over that small group. And Dan could see from the incredulous expressions on the faces of his young Ukrainian friends that they could not imagine, they could not imagine a people who were so wealthy that they would discard usable furniture just because it had gone out of fashion, or because they were remodeling, or because they had simply grown tired of the old furniture. That level of affluence was obviously inconceivable to those young Ukrainian Christians. That's when Dan said the full epiphany set in. At that moment, he was able to see through their eyes as to how truly rich we are here in America. I believe it was the Scottish poet Robert Burns who penned this line, Oh, what gift the gift does give us to see ourselves as others see us. 
And Dan said that was one of the few times in his life when he was able to do exactly that. To be able to look through their eyes to see where he came from and the kind of lifestyle that he represented. By prompting Dan to see that culture the way they saw it, these young Ukrainians caused him to reluctantly recognize something that he otherwise would not have admitted. And that is, in fact, that we are the rich people. Now, most of the time, we don't feel wealthy. And you may wonder as to why I would even preach a lesson like this if you're going through financial hard times in your life right now. But I'm talking generally, of course, and across the board about we as a group of people in this nation. And one of the reasons why we typically do not think of ourselves as rich people is because we tend to compare ourselves with other Americans who are better off than we are. And we tend to apply the word rich to those billionaires that we see on the news like Bill Gates or Warren Buffett, and certainly not to average middle-class people like you and me. And when we began to see our culture as those young Ukrainians saw it, we ought to be embarrassed to even deny our affluence. Do you know that the American, the average American has more than most people in the world today? That goes without saying. And we have far, far more than those people of past generations, even our own parents and our grandparents for that matter, we have generally more than they did. For example, here in America, a person could, could point to their 16-year-old automobile as proof that we're not very well off. But that would be unconvincing to a people who live in countries like the Ukraine because almost none of them have a car at all. And besides, if they question us even for a little while, they would quickly realize that every adult in every family has their own vehicle. And that is an unimaginable luxury for most of the planet's population. So this new set, this new self-awareness can begin to make us feel uncomfortable. And we can recognize how blessed we truly are. And we can look around at the rest of the world and specifically focus in places like the Ukraine, as we've been doing for the last few weeks for obvious reasons. And we can begin, begin to feel even more discomfort, especially when we read the warning of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 19, 23 and 24, here's what he said. I tell you the truth, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I'll tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Of God, You may remember that discussion and how that his disciples' response was, if that's the case, then who in the world can go to heaven? How in the world do you make it if rich people can't enter the kingdom of heaven? And the Lord recognized, and he was helping his disciples to recognize that it was a matter of not how much money you have or don't have, but your attitude toward what you possess that really matters most spiritually. Maybe for the first time in our lives, we hear the Lord speaking in, in that passage not just to Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg, but, but we hear him speaking to us and helping us to understand that we need to make sure that we are in a place spiritually in our lives where we own our stuff, our stuff does not own us. So what are rich people to do? That's the question that I want to spend the last few minutes of this lesson on this morning. And in the text that Edgar read a moment ago, I hope you'll turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 6. There are four things that Paul suggests 
in fact, encourages believers to make a part of our mindset, a part of our perspective, our worldview, in order to be able to live a productive and successful and victorious life, but also to make sure that we're not owned by our possessions or that we don't go through life with possession obsession. Because the Lord said in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, you cannot serve both God and money. It's going to be one or the other. Those are the two major options, the alternatives that we will have in life. So what is it that we're to do? I believe the appropriate response is to not fall into a paralyzing guilt, but rather to be motivated toward a sense of responsibility. I believe you'll see this in the passage. The Apostle Paul provides several guidelines in that passage when he directly addresses wealthy folks just like you and me. Here's part of what he said. I know Edgar read it, but let's go back and look at it one more time. Command those who are rich, Paul says, in this present world, not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way... They will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. Watch this. So that they may lay hold of life that is truly life. I hope as you read this passage this morning or at any other time in your private devotions that you'll really lock in to that last phrase. That last statement really ought to get our attention. So that you may lay hold of a life that is truly life. So it's possible to go through this world, to live this existence, to breathe this air, and to not have the kind and the quality of life that Paul is recommending. How important it is that we, that we see God's word speaks to every issue in our lives. That's a quality of life Paul wants us to know that's, that's available to everybody. But it's available only on God's terms. And we need to make sure that we know that. But not everybody is going to experience that quality of life simply because not everybody is going to read the owner's manual. And that, of course, is the word of God. So quickly, what are the four things? Number one, Paul says wealthy people like us should be rich in faith. Here's a Bible fact and a spiritual reality. The greater my financial prosperity, the greater the spiritual danger is. Once again, because those are the two major options. I'm either going to be striving for spiritual things and have my affections and my mind and my ambition set on things above, as Paul said in Colossians 3 verse 1. Or I'm going to be stricken by the the dreaded disease of affluenza, as Steve Farrar likes to call it. Those are the two options in life. And so, especially materialism is going to be a great danger. If I don't keep my spiritual feet on the ground. Riches have always presented a a threat to faith because they can create, and I hope you're listening very carefully, they can create a very dangerous self-sufficiency. You see, once you get a certain income, you can begin to think, hey, look what I've done. Look what I've accrued. Look what I have accomplished in my life. And, and that self-sufficiency, even for God's people, can be a very, very dangerous thing. I will, I'll just give you one illustration of that in the Bible. You may recall in Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, how that the Laodicean Christian, that church, because they were lukewarm, Jesus said, 
You're neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm. I will spew you out of my mouth. They were rejected by the Lord. Why was that? Verse 17 explains. They said, because we are rich and have gotten gain, watch this, and have need of nothing. That's the self-sufficiency I'm addressing. They said, we have need of nothing. And the Lord then says, but you have forgotten that you are wretched, naked, poor, blind, and miserable. That he was, he was looking at the spiritual side of things while they were looking at the material side. But that's the danger that Jesus is warning us about in the passage that we just looked at. How important it is. For example, let me give you an Old Testament example of this. When the Israelites were on the verge of entering the promised land, we talked about that at length last Sunday morning. Moses solemnly warned them. Listen to Moses' words to the Israelites. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God. By the way, this is Deuteronomy chapter 8 if you want to catch up. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God. When you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and your flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase, and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud. And you will forget the Lord your God. And you may even say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have reduced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, Moses says, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Again, Deuteronomy chapter 8, kind of the highlights of, of some of the passages between verses 10 and verse 18. So let's not ignore the necessary balance in our worldview. When we put our hope in God... We'll be rich in faith, as James calls it in James 2 verse 5, no matter how much or how little that we may have in our bank account. You know, many of us who are older did not experience the, the, the current level of affluence that, uh, that we have now when we were growing up. And that grounding, I think, kind of gives us a, a clearer understanding of what Paul means in our text when he says, wealth is so uncertain. I worry, though, when I see members of the younger generation receiving too much too soon at the hands of their parents or even their grandparents. You know, it's natural to want our children to have a better life than we had. But for their own good and for their own godliness, we need to beware of spoiling them by depriving them of the valuable experience of learning to make their own way in the world. As someone has said, we always need to remember that it takes a steady hand to hold a full cup. Here's the second thing that Paul says needs to be a part of our, of our awareness, our worldview. As we walk in this world and try to keep our mind focused on spiritual things, and that is wealthy people like us need to be rich in generosity. So if God has blessed you financially, that's one of the things, one of the responsibilities that we have to use our wealth in a way that it can be a blessing to those around us. We, we're, we're rich in generosity. You well know that the standard of giving in the New Testament is not a percentage. It's not 10% like it was in the Old Testament. But rather it's according to your means, 2 Corinthians eight eleven. It's in keeping with your income or as you have prospered, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 1 and 2 says... And since that's the case, it just makes sense that Paul commands wealthy people to be willing to, to, to be generous and willing to share. That's a part of our text. Generous and willing to share. Mia has a, a piece of wall art in our kitchen 
that, that serves as a great reminder. At least it does for me. And it reads, if, if you are blessed with more than you need, build a longer table and not a higher fence. And that's right, isn't it? You see, one of the greatest blessings of prosperity is the ability to financially support specific works that we believe in. And almost every Lord's Day, there's some kind of need, some legitimate concern that we can address with our pocketbooks. One couple I know of feels strongly that their first priority should be to their own church family, and so they give accordingly. That's where their weekly offering goes. When the plate comes by or whenever the opportunity has been given for them to give, they make sure that their first, their first responsibility is to the local congregation. But beyond that, however, they're grateful to have enough extra to be able to support a number of worthy works. Not to the same degree as those men and women who have their names on the buildings of some of our Christian universities, but they try to remember to do what they can with what they have where they are and knowing that with that, God will be blessed. For example, because they want to see more lost souls come to Jesus, they regularly give to World Bible School. Because they believe that the battleground for the minds of people and especially our young people, is in the field of Christian apologetics. They give to Apologetics Press. And because they believe that every child deserves a stable home and a place of security growing up, they, they give to Georgia Agape as well as Agape of Central Alabama. And as the occasion presents itself, they're privileged to make a donation to church-sponsored relief efforts when there are entire communities that have been devastated by some natural calamity. They have long found that in such cases, a little bit goes a long way. Quickly, number three, Paul says wealthy people like us can be rich in good deeds. I don't think you get any more practical than that. Here's one way that we can use the blessings of wealth that God has placed within, within us. Why does Paul, in our text, say that prosperous people ought to do good and be rich in good deeds? That's the question on the floor. Well, that's because while our financial prosperity is important, rich people like us need to make sure that we're more than just checkbook Christians. I think you know what I'm talking about. You know, I've personally known of several individuals in the church of our Lord who were millionaires. And on a couple of occasions, I've known some people who were multi-millionaires but who are always ready and willing to roll up their sleeves and to help out whatever ministry of the congregation that needed volunteers, whether it was frying fish for an outreach event or clearing brush for the church cleanup day. They didn't just write a check and put it in the collection plate and say, let somebody else do that. I'm willing to pay for it. They would actually get out there and work themselves. And you know, what I've observed is that that kind of individual has learned firsthand the joy of service. And they seem to be a lot happier than those who, while they're willing to drop a check in the plate each Sunday, never really become involved beyond that, that passive role. I think that's why Paul has included this element in this discussion, don't you? That you be rich in good works, not just in your ability to financially subsidize good works, but that you yourself are, are characteristic of good works. You're always doing something for others. Number four, and finally, Paul says in our text that wealthy people like us can be rich in heavenly treasures. You may remember earlier in this same chapter, Paul says in verses 7 and 8, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. 
We've all heard the expression, you can't take it with you. And we know that to be exactly right. In fact, I remember hearing about two servants of Howard Hughes. Some of you in the audience are old enough to remember who Howard Hughes was. But he was an eccentric, worldly, but very rich billionaire, multi-billionaire. And a couple of his servants that had worked for him for many years were standing by his grave when his casket was lowered into the ground. One of the servants looked at the other and said, I wonder, because they had not liquidated his assets upon his death, they had no idea exactly how much this guy was worth. And one of the servants asked that question of the other. I wonder how much the old boy really left behind. And the other servant said, every bit of it. That's true. It's not just for billionaires. It's true for all the rest of us as well. We'll leave it all behind. But Paul suggests, while that it's certainly true that we can't take it with us, there is a sense in which we can send it on ahead. But, but how do we do that? You know, when wealthy people like us are generous givers, the Bible says they lay up for themselves treasures for, for the foundation for the coming age. That is, you're looking beyond this world into eternity and building something very important that will last forever. Paul is simply repeating what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount when he urged his disciples to, to, not, to store up for yourselves treasures in heaven and not on earth. Because on earth, moth and rust will corrupt and thieves will break through and steal. He said, but make sure when you lay up treasures, you're laying up treasures in the world to come. And the point ought to be clear. Earthly banks are insured by the FDIC. But the Bank of Heaven has a far greater guarantee on our deposits. It has the backing of an almighty God who is preparing an eternal home for each of us. I'm so thankful that my friend Dan experienced that epiphany and that he was willing to write about it and share that experience with others that caused him to recognize that he was indeed wealthy as measured by any earthly standard. And even the awareness of our affluence sometimes makes us uncomfortable, but it can also help us to fill our responsibility as rich people. Jesus said in Acts 20 and verse 38, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when we truly learn to be generous with our wealth, it helps us to enjoy what Jesus in Luke 16 in verse 11 called true riches. The implication is clear. What you're carrying in your pocket, what you're putting into your bank account, that's not true riches. It's a necessity. You need those things to get through this life. We live in this world. We need that. But Jesus says that's, that's not true riches. That's not something that will last forever. And he offers us something that will do exactly that. He said in the Sermon on the Mount, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That's Matthew 6, verse 21. So let me end the lesson this morning by asking that simple question. Where is your treasure and your heart this morning? And if you've not been following Jesus, we want to sing a song of encouragement that hopefully will encourage you to make this the time when you will say, I have decided to follow Jesus. And that I'm going to place my earthly investments in heavenly treasures. And I'm going to follow Jesus from this day forward. Repent of my past sins, confess his sweet name, and have his, his very blood wash all of my sins away in the waters of baptism. If you need to come this morning and follow Jesus, we pray that you will while we stand and while we sing.
nailed to the cross. 